We're glad to have you today, and we've been going through the book of uh, Galatians, and the week before last, uh, Sam brought an awesome message, and last week, Teresa uh, brought an awesome message, and uh, I just am so proud of the work they do, and their study, people go, well, how, how, do, you, how do you train them? Hey, they're just hungry for the Word, they get in there, they study the Word, they, they uh, prepare, and they, they share the Word. And today, I want to talk about this subject, as we're talking in Galatians 4, I want to talk about nobody but Jesus. Nobody but Jesus. And uh, as we look at this, my title for today is Jesus Changes Everything. Jesus literally changes everything in our life. And uh, He makes everything new. We look at this, I'm going back to a few weeks ago. Galatians 1, 6 through 9, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. Now, that's what Paul says at first, and then he goes, not, not that there is another one. So Paul said there is no other gospel. There is no other good news but Jesus. There's not another gospel. There's only one gospel. And so I, you're turning to a different gospel, and then he goes, well, there's not really another, another one. But there are some who trouble you, and he says, want to distort the gospel of Christ. But, it, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. And that's very kind, the way he used it there. If you go back to the original, pretty rough statement there. As we have said before, I like what Paul said, I done and told you. <laughs> Yeah, if your mom ever tells you, like, I already told you, I'm not going to tell you no more. Paul said, I done and told you. I'm not, I'm not going to tell you, I'm not going to keep telling you, I've done and told you. I tell you again, when Jesus said, verily, verily, I say unto you, he says, hey, I mean business. Listen up. Uh, as I have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you receive, let him be a curse. And uh, so... Where I want us to be in the book of Galatians from all the teachings we've had on it is Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. If you add anything to the gospel besides Jesus Christ, it becomes no gospel at all. It becomes no gospel at all. And, you know, I don't know if you grew up in a church, but when I grew up in church, well, I got saved. But then on top of being saved, I had to do this, and then I had to do that, and I had to do the other. And I had, you know, they just come up with a long list of stuff I had to do after I got saved. Well, if you add anything to the gospel, it's nothing. The gospel is Jesus, and that's it. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll be saved. Not believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and then do this and this and this and this. It's believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and nothing else. And so that's what I want to really get to today. And uh, I'm going to read some verses of Scripture here. And I'm reading now the KJV. They maybe have a little bit different version. Sometimes we'll have one different on the wall. But you'll be able to compare the two. And it says, now I say that the heir, this is Romans 4 and 1, now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differ nothing from a servant, though he be Lord of all. But under tutors and governors until the time appointed to the father. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law. To redeem them that were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because ye are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore thou art no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. I want to go back and, and, and do a little background history on this. One thing I was taught in college is one of the reasons, and I know Preaching has went different places over the years. And, uh, but the thing that I was taught in college is when you're going to share a text, you need to find the context. If you don't find the context in which the original text was given in, then you just got a pretext. You're just making up stuff. You just, well, I think he meant this. I think he meant that. 
What was the context of the day? When Paul was living and Paul said this and Paul said that and Paul was explaining this, what was he comparing it to? What kind of analogy was he given? And how, if it was an analogy, it must have to be an analogy of their day or they wouldn't understand it. So what was Paul saying? What was the context that was uh, there when Paul spoke these words? And so that's what I want to give you a little bit of history on today that will help these verses of Scripture, I believe, come in and view. The passage, the Apostle Paul explains their adoption. See, he's saying because Jesus, everything changes. One thing that changes, you're no longer a slave. You're no longer a child anymore. You're a son. You're no longer under bondage anymore. You're free. And he's going through these things because of Jesus, everything changed. Which is, is one of the blessings which Christian we can experience is adoption. He told the Ephesians believers, God has predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Ephesians 1 and 5. So who is it that chooses to adopt us? And what was, uh, what was the context? What was it that we needed to do in order to be uh, made ready for adoption? It doesn't say anything. It God predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ himself. Jesus Christ himself is the one that made it possible for us to be adopted according to the good pleasure of his will. He does, he uh, makes us adopted as he chooses, as God wills. Not so much as we will. And so we don't, eat, we don't enter God's family the same way a homeless person would enter into a loving family in our society. The only way you get into God's family is by regeneration. I've often explained regeneration like this. It's a, uh, a term you learn, you're born again, you're regenerated. See, we, Adam, we were, we were cursed because of Adam's race. Uh, Adam, uh, Adam was God's first, you know, first Adam. He was created, and Adam disobeyed God, and he sinned. And because of Adam's sins, we all was plunged into sin. We all become a part of the Adam's family. You know, we're creepy, and we're goofy, and we were the Adam's family. But because Jesus Christ, and the Bible refers to Jesus Christ as the second man, Adam, he come, and he come to reverse the curse. He come to take away the curse, and we would no longer be born in iniquity, born into sin, born into this awfulness that Jesus was going to provide a way for us to be uh, of a new generation, to be born again. You don't like the way you was born to start with, be born again. A lot of times in Scripture, it wasn't the firstborn that got the blessing. Sometimes it was the second. And it was up to the father to choose who, which, what son he wanted to give the blessing to. You know, a lot of times it was, it was kind of had become a thing for the first son to get it. But we find quite a bit in Scripture where the second son got the blessing. And so it was, it was of the predestined desire will of the Father. The Father could choose whoever. And so we're regenerated through Jesus Christ, the second man, Adam. Jesus answered this young man. He said, uh, he wanted to know how you got into heaven. He said, most assuredly, I say, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. So there is no heaven. There is no entering the kingdom of God without being born again. You've got to get out of the generation of Adam and get in the generation of Jesus Christ. You've got to be regenerated, born again. The New Testament word adoption means to place in a family in an adult state, not in a child state, in an adult state. And I, I, I was studying this. I've never come across, I never saw this in scripture before the last couple of weeks. I've been so excited to share it with you uh, in, in, in today in this passage. So we become adopted by God and we're adopted in an adult son state, a position. It is all about our standing with God. It's a positional standing. It's a family. God already sees us as holy. God already sees us as acceptable. That's our positional place with God. It's all about standing within the family of God. We are no longer children, but full-grown, mature adult sons with all the entitlements and the privileges of sonship. Unfortunately, all the Bible translations do not make 
lot of times you see in the scripture, it's calling a, a child or a children. But actually, if you go back to the original language, it's supposed to be son. It, it, it was that uh, adult place with God. We have been made children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Through faith, we're made children. But we're not to stay there. We are born into his family. But every one of us, his children, every one of his children are automatically placed in his family as a son. And as a son, he has all the rights and privileges of a literal son. When a sinner trusts Christ for his salvation, he is saved. As far as his condition and his concern, he is a spiritual babe. He needs to grow as newborn babes need to grow. They desire pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious, 1 Peter 2 and 2, 3. So we start out, but as far as a position, a positional concern, he is an adult son who can draw upon the father's wealth, his father's power, and he can exercise all the wonderful privileges of sonship. We enter in God's family by regeneration, but we enjoy God's family by and through adoption. The Christian does not have to wait, nor does it have to grow mature before it can enjoy the spiritual riches he has in Christ in verse 7. In this passage, Paul will teach such uh, on the subject of adoption by remaining, reminding the readers of three things. He said, number one, what we were, what we were, say were, we were children of bondage. We find that in verses 1, 1 through 3, or chapter 4. And then number two, what God did. What did God do? He redeemed us. He bought us. He paid for us. Redeemed means purchased, bought back. Then number three, we are sons and heirs, verses 6 and 7. We are, right now, presently, we are sons and heirs with God. All right, now uh, he says, now remembering that we're sons and heirs, I want you to be reminded that he said, now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differ nothing from a servant, though he be Lord of all, but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the father. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world until the time appointed of the father. This whole time of choosing when... That child is considered a son, is the, it's the appointment of the father. What time was that? It was the time when a father recognized his son was capable of making decisions on his own. And he brought him into the position of a full-grown son. Notice it was the father who determined when his son reached the age of maturity. Uh, I need a, one of the guys come up. Shorty, will you come up and help me? <laughs> I got a feeling you've probably done this before. I don't know. <laughs> I want you to, uh, this is not for graduation, but I want you to put this on right here and stand over here. See, in, in Paul's time, just stand there and just act naturally. <laughs> All right. <laughs> <laughs> no, in, in, see, in biblical times, they were rites of passage. Whether you be Jewish. Now what was a, a boy gets a certain age in the Jewish faith. What did they go through? Bar mitzvah. And normally, see they were smart. But they know women were more mature than men. Because women went through their rights before men did. Uh, and so usually it was a year or two earlier. Now they find out. You go, well that's not fair. Well you know what? When you go, if you got a son and you go out and you buy insurance for that son they're going to charge you more than they do for the female at the same age because there's this thing called this frontal lobe and a woman finishes her frontal lobe and she gets to make start making smart decisions and hers sometimes they connect about 16 17 18 years of age and they make wise decisions they go well we'll give them insurance cheaper because they don't get in as many accidents but a guy, they say their frontal lobe don't finish closing until they're like 25, 26, 27, 70, what? <laughs> she ain't talking about you. <laughs> but it's true. And they say if you use alcohol and drugs, you can mess up your frontal lobe. 
And even after you quit using drugs, it can be a period of time. It can be, you know, you go, well, we put them in a 28-day program and they're not back. They're not right yet. Well, they're probably not going to be right because it's going to take time for the frontal lobe to get back right where they can make right decisions. So it could take up to a year. It could take two years. It could take 18 months. So that's the danger of using drugs. You ever seen somebody, they're baked? I'm not talking about you. I mean, they're baked. <laughs> they're not all there. <laughs> they're not home. They're, they're, the porch light's on, but there's nobody there. That may be somebody that's used a little too much drugs. But here's the thing. In biblical times, all these parents, and I'm talking primarily of Roman. See, the Jews had a certain one. The Greeks had a certain one. How many ever was in college and you was in a fraternity? Okay, we got some in here. I know what you were in, buddy. <laughs> My son was in Sig Epps at University of Tennessee. And they joined and they went through... Uh, this thing, they first started out as a pledge. If you want to know another name for a pledge, it means slave. <laughs> a slave, you're a pledge. And you join the fraternity and, and you have to do all the dirty work until you finally are no longer a pledge. And then you get to make other young guys do the dirty work. And so my, both of my sons were uh, pledges and then they were in the fraternity, even made leadership. And, you know, there was that awful week of Hell's Week, you know, Hell's Week. And that's where they really made sure you wanted to be a real son. Another thing I didn't know, but they had these little black books. And they used to keep all the names of the boys in the fraternity. They would learn their names, their parents' names, their brothers' and sisters' names, what their parents did for a living. And so finally, they would also have classes on how to treat women. Now, that's not something you would normally think of as a fraternity, having classes on how to treat women. But in, this, in their CIGAP fraternity in Knoxville, they did. And so we came on campus, and it was, it was parents' day, and all the parents come, and there was a football game. And we got there, and they had the fraternity house looking kind of wild. They had took and put about an inch and a half of sand all the way through the entire fraternity house. And they had palm trees in there, and it was like a, a hula stuff, and I don't know, it was like, like Margaritaville. <laughs> it was crazy. But they had the parents, so when me and my wife went there, we'd never been to the fraternity. We walked up the door, and they, somebody we didn't know go, how you doing, Mr. and Mrs. Daniels? How's Crossville? How's Grace Community Church doing? And, uh, and they started saying all this, and how is the school going, Sharon? And they knew all this stuff. Well, that's stuff they had to learn, and it would also help them in the business world. And so, like, man, these kids know us, and they know everything about us. And so it's just something they did, and it was also a part of Hell's Week. And uh, so we get there, and they have, uh, they have all kind of food, and they have a, a, a big old hog they roasted. And so after it was over, we asked our son where all that came from. And he said, well, we went out, and we bought this hog, and we brought it back to the fraternity house, and we put it in the shower, and we killed it. He said, Dad, do you know how much blood is in a hog? And I can just see him wallowing this hog all over the fraternity house on the floor, cutting it and blood going everywhere and now knowing how nasty that place was anyway. And then they roasted it and then they fed it to the parents. I'm telling you, I'm amazed we didn't die that day. <laughs> but, <laughs> and I go, well, who in the world's going to get all this sand out of the, this fraternity house? He said, well, that, the pledges do that. We're not worried about it. They, they got to clean it up. And so the poor pledges had to get in there, and it took them several weeks to get it all back to normal. But the thing is, uh, how many knows what a toga is and a toga party? Now I'm getting to my real people right here. <laughs> a toga, how many saw Animal House? <laughs> yeah, that's my people, that's my people. They seen Animal House and toga party. Well, you know, the fraternity, the Greek fraternities, the the. the but back in Paul's day, they had these ceremonies, these ceremonies that represented the, uh, the rites of passage. And so Paul's writing to some people that had this rite of passage, and he knew that they would know what he's talking about. So in a Roman family, when they grew up, their kids had to wear, and it wasn't black like this, but they wore this, they wore this like a gown thing, and it had this like a purple around the bottom. It meant that they were a child. They wasn't grown up yet. They wasn't old enough yet. In other words, in the Jewish family, they, they thought there was, a, there was a point of, uh, you know, at a certain point before that, 
if you sin, you were not kind of responsible because you were not at the age of responsibility or accountability until about 12, 13 years of age. And then you're of the, then you, you better know the law for yourself. You better know. And so, you know, I, I was thinking about this. And so they, I was reading about this ceremony and they call the ceremony. Uh, I want to read this to you. I downloaded this, this ceremony. Now, the Roman, they did it when the boys were about 14, between 14 and 17 years of age. And they had this festival, they had the family, and it was, it was considered a religious thing. And they had a toga party, basically. And what they would do, it was called the toga virellis. The toga virellis, which was a plain toga, which adults wore. But before that, they wore the, the one with the purple band around the bottom of it. A purple band. And we don't have that today, and I don't have one of those garments. But once again, there was a quite a, a different uh, time. And what it meant is this child had went and was under tutors. And back then, if you, if you had slaves, which at that time, Paul's talking about slavery, they was roughly under the Roman Empire, there's about 60 million slaves. Now, in that area where Paul is talking about, there would have been about 10 million slaves. And, and so there was a lot of slavery going on under the Roman Empire. And so during this period of time, people would buy these slaves, and these slaves would take care of the little boys that wasn't men yet, was not sons yet. And they would say, you do that, you do that. So the slaves are bossing around the, the children of the, the house. And so they were under slaves, they were under tutors, they were under guardians, they were under governmentship, you might say. But they, and they wore this garment, meaning they could be told what to do, because they're just a kid, they're just a child. But when the child got a certain age, and like I said, it's different families, different traditions, but it was in the own discretion of the father, the father goes, my son, he knows the law. He knows right from wrong. He makes good decision. And so they would have him come in and they would say, son, I'm proud of you. I want you to take off this ceremony. I want you to take off this. So they'd take that off. And the son would take it off. And they would actually, it was a religious thing. They would take it off and they would lay this aside and they would lay it on an altar. They would lay it on an altar. And then the, the father would take, and I, I don't have a toga here, but I've got this white gown. And uh, they would take this white gown and they would have him put this on. And, you know, and according to what, your family, if you had the money, some of them had actually a gold thing that went here. Some of them had a leather thing. Some of them had a, just a draping vine looking thing. You've probably seen some of the toga things. But they wore a toga and then they had a big toga party. But it wasn't like some of your toga parties. You know, in America, about the only rite of passage is like, well, when are, you, uh, when are you grown? Like, used to be it was 21. When you're 21, you could start drinking and you was grown. You were considered adult. Well, then when they started shipping our men away at 18 to Vietnam, they go, well, that ain't fair. You want us to go at Vietnam? You don't want us to drink? We well, are not considered adult. We can't, you know, that ain't fair. And so they switched the law from 21 to 18. Actually, me and my wife got married at 17. And uh, at 17, we went down, and they had moved the law from 21 to, to 18. Used to, if you were under 21, you could get your parents to sign a, a consent paper, and you could get married. So then they changed the law from 21 to 18. So we were 17. We went over to the courthouse to get our marriage license, and they go, you can't get married. We go, well, we can. Our parents, we got their consent right here. Well, that don't matter. The law didn't drop down like that, so you can't get married. And so, oh my God, we'd already got a church, already got the, sent out all the invitations. We've been told we can't get married. And this minister said, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll take y'all. We'll drive straight through to Ridgeland, South Carolina. We'll get married at the courthouse. I'll take you back and I'll marry you in the church. The one in the church will be kind of be symbolic because you'll already be married in South Carolina, Ridgeland, South Carolina. So it evidently worked. We've been married 46 years. So it, we're, we're still checking to see if it's going to work out, but... <laughs> <laughs> 46 years. But the thing is, that's right. You know, they changed rights of passage to 18. How many know somebody that's 18 ain't an adult yet? <laughs> or 21? Or 27? They didn't get there. And, and so, you know, in America, I think we missed something. 
is the only way you prove you're an adult, like you can go out and get drunk. I got drunk the other night. I'm pretty good. I think I'm an adult now. I think it takes more than getting drunk to be an adult. But in Paul's time, they were people just that crazy. When they had this party, they would go out and they'd be with women, or in Romans' time, guys, or they would get drunk and they would go in. And, and Paul tells you later in the book of Romans, don't, don't use this new sonship, don't use this adulthood to go out here and do that. That proves nothing. That don't prove anything. And so it was a great honor and a great day for a father to be able to put on this garment, this uh, toga virelis, if I'm saying it right, virelis. It was a great day to put that on. And it was telling everybody, this is my son and he is going to be heir of this household. It was a great day. It was a great honor. Now, I don't know, but I, I kind of have been thinking a little bit since I learned this material I've been, I've been thinking about the prodigal son. Now, I wonder why, because it wasn't always the father's obligation to give the, the blessing to the first son. And you know, the, the, the second son went away. When he come back, they, you hear of a very similar cer- ceremony. He said, I want you to go kill the fatted calf. And I want you to get the family ring. The family ring was an assignment ring that had this symbol on it. And what they could do, they could take legal documents and drip wax on it. And then they would stick that ring down in that wax and it would make a symbol, meaning that this had been approved from the uh, household. And so it was a legal document. And uh, they still find some of those, those uh, it's like a hardened wax type stuff. They're still finding those in, in Israel today with the insignia on it of different people. But it was saying that that son with the signet ring, go get the royal robe, the, the robe, the, maybe it was like the toga, the robe, go get that robe, put it on, give them the signet ring, get their sandals, because my son, which was lost, has come home. Now, if the older son said, well, my, I've been here all this time, and he's not making me the heir apparent. He's not making me the, he's not throwing a party for me. Then I could see why the elder son would be angry. I could see why he could be upset. You can take that off now because it may get hot there. Thank you. Give him a hand, y'all. But I want to tell you another reason I believe this is what Paul was talking about. Jesus was raised... And he was brought up, and from the time he was a baby, they said, this is, this is the Messiah. And I used to think that Jesus, what kind of bright boy that is, that Jesus, at 12 years old, Jesus is in the temple, and they, they're, they're looking for Jesus, they can't find him. He's in the temple, and he's, he's, going th- he's, he's talking with the rabbis. And the, well, I thought that was kind of strange until I went to Jerusalem. You go down to where the wedding wall is and over to the side, there's a room there and it's, it's, the, it's like the grandfathers and the fathers and the rabbis and there's, these, there's young men in there that's like 12 years old and they'll be reading from the Torah, they'll be reading it in Hebrew and then these elders will be asking them questions and these young people about 12, 13 years old, they will be feeding back the answers and they'll kind of be in a debate and the, the elders will challenge them and that's getting them ready for this time when they are going to be considered a son. And I saw that with my own eyes. So it may not have been such a weird thing for Jesus to have went to the temple and he's having kind of a debate with the rabbis. But I'm going to tell you what, Jesus is winning because he's the word made flesh. And Jesus knows what he's talking about in the temple. And so Jesus is telling them, and they go, man, he speaks with wisdom. He speaks like a, somebody way beyond his years. Where did he learn all this at? Well, you know, it's not long after that. You, we see Jesus at 12, and then you see him going through life. He's still learning. He's under uh, his father's tutorship. He's learning the things of mouth. But we come to this time. We come to this time when Jesus goes down to be baptized. And you know, Paul, some people believe that Paul is talking about this, this toga virelis, even in baptism. Because when you go down to be baptized, you go down in the water, and you come up out of the water, and you no longer live, but Christ liveth in you. And you're, you're a son of the living God. And you're a new creature. You've been born again. And he says, put off the old 
clothes and put on the new. That's what they did in the ceremony. They took the old garments of being a child, a baby, unlearned, and put on the adult, the sonship clothes, the heir clothes. Put on them. Put on them. You're now a son of God. And so we see Jesus goes down, and he's following God, and he goes down to the river of Jordan. And he goes down, and John baptizes him. And, you know, it says it's at the predestined, determined time of the Father. And so the Father, you hear Jesus comes up out of the water. There's a dove, and then there's a voice from heaven. What does the voice from heaven say? This is my Son, and whom I'm well pleased in. And that was the launching of Jesus' ministry. Jesus went out and the, the devils trembled at his voice. Jesus was coming in the power of God Almighty, led of the Holy Spirit. Led of the Holy Spirit, going out in great power. And, and you know, the, the, the child, when he become, he may have been raised by certain slaves and tutors and governors. But when they come and they change garments and they put on that garment of a son... Then that son got to tell the the governor and got to tell the tutors what to do. And the father may say something like, see my son right here? He's now a son. And from now on, he is in control of this household. He will inherit this household. And I want you to know, whatever he says, you need to do it because he's in charge. Well, it's funny that, you know, they understood Jesus was the son of the living God. And so Jesus goes down uh, and there's a wedding. And at this wedding, they run out of wine. And they said, you know, they're running out of wine and they come to Jesus. And, uh, and the mother knew. The mother knew her son was special. He wasn't just her baby anymore. He was the son of God. And the mother said, Mary said, whatever he tells you to do, do it. And so they go get some pictures and fill it up with water. And you are to see these pictures over there in, 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 uh, in Jerusalem. They're like really, really big. You could have a good party with a big old picture of wine that big. I mean, it's big. And there's a lot of them. And Jesus turned the water into wine. He turned the water into wine. And he said, whatever he tells you to do, do it. And Jesus went in the wilderness and the devil come to tempt him. And Jesus told him, that ain't the way it's going to go, devil. Like, who are you? I'll tell you who I am. I'm the son of the living God. Back off. He was a son. And I believe there is something to this. I believe there is something to this, this changing, this putting on. And so another thing they used to do, whether it be a male or a female, when the son and the daughter came to this ceremony, they would bring, if it was a daughter, the daughter would take off her old garment and she would lay it on the altar. And then the parents would put on the new garment. And then after they put on the new garment, that they were now an adult, she would take her baby doll and she would take her baby doll and she would lay her baby doll on the altar. A son, usually it was their most precious toy. A son, a lot of times it was just a ball that they played with. It was a ball. But they would take that ball and they had taken off their other garment they put on their new garment of sonship and they take that ball and they lay that ball on the on the altar and you know then it makes sense if you get in the context of galatians galatians said it's about time to take off the old garment and put on the new garment we're not talking to babies anymore in god in god's position you're a son of the living god you have authority you can speak in behalf of god's house you can speak in jesus name then he says, and then he says, you need to lay aside childish things like the baby doll and like the ball. Or like he says that the law was like tutors and governors to bring us to Christ. But now it's time to lay that aside. Lay that aside. When you've got Jesus, you've got enough. Jesus plus nothing represents everything. You don't need anything else. And so I believe that Paul, in context of Galatians, is talking about this ceremony. But before faith came, we were kept under the guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, 
That we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we no longer are under a tutor. What does the tutor represent? The law. We no longer represent the law. Jesus, I mean, Teresa stood up here last week and she told you that when we come to Jesus Christ, you don't need the, we don't need these things of the law anymore. It's not Jesus Christ plus you got to do this and you got to do that and you got to do that and you got to do that. You know, well, those things are not important. They could be important, but you don't have to do it for salvation. You don't have to do it for salvation. One of the greatest things we get to do, and I know you love your children, your grandchildren. Like yesterday, we went down, it's my wife's birthday, we went down to uh, Knoxville and we got to be with both of our sons and all five grandchildren. My son is key teaching uh, T-ball and Little League ball. And, you know, they went out there and they played ball and we was watching them. And, you know, it's like, you know, they'd hit the ball and run to first base. And, Daddy, did you see me? Did you see me? You know, can you see me, Daddy? I done it. I done it. Their learning of baseball is not a whole lot about the rules. They don't understand a lot of the rules. But they understand they want to please their daddy. Which brings us to another statement that Paul said. He tells us in here that we stand between, what stands between the law and grace is the cross. And the cross stands between the law and grace. He said there's, before the cross there was no putting away of sin. You couldn't put away sin before the cross. God pardoned sinners. As part of a judgment, he covered, it, covered up their sin. He anticipated the coming of a redeemer. God pardoned the saints before Calvary upon the promise of the coming of Christ. Before Christ, there was no full forgiveness for the sinner. But after Calvary, sin is put away. Before Calvary, sin was pardoned. After Calvary, the sinner was justified by grace upon full payment of the penalty of the law by death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Before Calvary, no one could go to heaven before Calvary, but was, went to a place called Sheol unto sin, and, until sin could be put away with. You wasn't fit for heaven until sin could be dealt with. Therefore, my heart is glad, the writer says in Psalm 16 and 9 and 10. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also shall rest in hope, for thou shalt not leave my soul in hell. Neither will thou suffer thy holy one to see corruption. After the cross, we could honestly tell people, and I've done it many a times in a funeral. I tell them, your loved one is not here. Because the Bible said to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. And because of Calvary, your loved one can go right in the presence of the Lord because sin is not just pardoned. Sin is not just covered up. Sin has been dealt with. Sin is done. It's done. Death is done. We're all going to live eternally somewhere, folks. And so when, when Paul is talking to the Galatians, if he uses the term us and we, he's talking to the Jews because he was one of the us. He was one of the Jews. If Paul was using the term ye or you, he was talking to the Gentiles because he was not a Gentile. Now, Paul refers to the fullness of time, refers to the time the world was providentially ready for the advent of Jesus Christ. There's a lot of things that dovetailed in history about the time uh, that Jesus was born. One of the things in, in Genesis is, you know, when, when, when Adam sinned, it said that God would one day raise up a redeemer by the seed of a woman and her heel, his heel will bruise Satan's head, put in me between them. Well, in Genesis 49 and 10, it says that the scepter, that Judah would be in charge, Judah would rule until Shiloh comes. Well, you know, all this time that, that God's people got to rule over their people, even under the Roman Empire, Rome said, okay, you can deal with your religious fanatic people all you want. We won't mess with y'all. You don't mess with us. If you don't cause no trouble, Rome will stay out of your way. Now, sometimes the Romans say, well, here, you know, here, take my cloak or take this. Or, and Paul said, if they ask you to go a mile, go two miles. And they were, they, they were things that Rome forced them to do, but they didn't mess with their religion. But about the time that Jesus Christ came, Rome took away their authority to rule their own people. 
when the fullness of time came. Why was that important? Why was it important for the Roman Empire to be so huge? Because the Roman Empire built roads and cities and made you could go from one end of the empire to another with roads and shipping lanes and ships. And it made for a fast pace carrying out the gospel. Rome kind of was like, you know, you don't mess with us, we won't mess with you. And so they ruled with some sort of peace in a way. If you got in their way, they'd kill you. But I mean, they ruled and they kept other people from destroying. They just kind of had a way of going about things. And so they had, they had built a, pretty much a common language. Uh, Rome is here now, so you're going to speak Greek. Or we'll let some of you speak Latin. And all the other languages were dying out. They were no longer to speak those other languages. And so they became a common language, a common language of that day. Because uh, it was easy to get the gospel out in that common language, which is primarily Greek or Latin. And so the gospel could go fast. You go, well, so we need to understand that God's always in control. Even our government and the world governments, we're biting our fingernails, worried about everything. God knows exactly what he's doing. They'd been like 400 silent years where there'd been no real word from God. What was it? It was a dark time. Israel, God's people were foolish and didn't have any real religious status. Nobody really wanted to follow them. They were just a bunch of goofy religious people at that time. And nobody respected them. And, and so there was a, a, a void, there was a hunger, they, was, they were wanting somebody to come and be their Messiah. There was a hunger for a move of God. And about the fullness of time, another thing that the Bible said in the Old Testament, Jesus would be killed on a cross, on a tree. Thank Teresa or Sam talked about that. What well, do you understand if... if, if if they had not taken the scepter, the ruling authority, away from the Jewish people, you know how Jesus would have been killed? Stoned. Because they killed people by stoning. Well, you knew something had to happen because Jesus wasn't going to be stoned. He was going to be put on a cross. Well, the people that hung people on a cross were the Romans. So you know at the time of Jesus, the Roman Empire would even have to be in charge of the religious people, the church. And that's what happened. That they got tired. And so even to put Jesus to death, they had to go ask the Roman leaders, can we do this? He did this. He did that. You know, it was like a tattling session. Three different times they wanted permission to kill Jesus. Because it was under Roman Empire. And they finally said, well, you know, you have this thing where I can give you Barabbas or whoever you want. Barabbas is the worst uh, killer, sinner, murderer, bad guy. If you want to replace Barabbas I give you that one wish you can replace Barabbas with Jesus and so they did and they put and so they turned Jesus over to the Rome to be crucified if Rome wouldn't have been in charge he wouldn't have been crucified it was the fullness of time it was the right time at the right place and I'm telling you God's word is so precise so detailed if you look at all these things in context, it's very, very precise. And so it said that, and Israel was like, well, I don't know what's going on because we're supposed to be in control. And the Bible says that we would be in control until Shiloh comes. What they didn't know, Shiloh had already been born. And he lived over there in a little Nazareth town. And he hadn't come on the full scene, but he was here. And it was Jesus. If they believed their own doctrine, they would know that Jesus come. They knew that Jesus come. So what I'm telling you, you know, I'll, I'll just be honest with you. I, I could probably write them down and think about it. And I can, but I can't just quote you the Ten Commandments anymore. I used to just rattle them off, the Ten Commandments. You go, that's bad, Pastor. You just admit it in front of everybody. You, you can't even quote the Ten Commandments. Well, you know what? It, it don't bother me too much anymore. Because I don't, I'm not, I don't stay up at night worrying about the Ten Commandments. See, there was this thing, the Bible said that the, that the Holy Spirit, Paul said the Holy Spirit would come into you and you would begin to call Father God, Abba. There's only about four times in Scripture, three to four times in Scripture where the word Abba Father is ever used. When the disciples asked Jesus, said, Jesus, how, how are we supposed to pray? And he said, pray like this, Daddy, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. That's one of the places. He was teaching them how to pray. He said, pray daddy. 
How many of you go into your, your, your dad and ask for something and you go, Oh, most gracious Father! I didn't know how you approach your daddy if you love him. When Jesus was in the garden, Jesus was in the garden, he was praying in the garden. And he prayed once and then he prayed again. He said, Daddy, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. And he prayed the more earnest and he said, Daddy, that's okay. Not my will, but thy will be done. That was that spiritual sonship of whatever the father wanted. That's what he was going to do. I don't worry about the Ten Commandments because the Holy Spirit has wrote them on my heart. I don't want to do those things not because some leader in a church that's an elder is going to bring me up with charges because I didn't keep something that he ain't even keeping probably. But I want to please Daddy. Did you know that even though Jesus gave them permission to call Father Daddy, none of of the disciples ever called him Daddy until after Pentecost when the Spirit came. And Paul says, when the Spirit come, when the Spirit come, the Spirit of adoption takes place inside of us, and then we cry, Abba, Father, meaning Daddy. You know why I want to live for God? You know why I want to serve God? You know why I want to come to church? You know why I want to pay my tithes? You know why I want to live right? I want to please Daddy. My son, the most precious thing is seeing them out there playing, whether it's my older granddaughters or my younger granddaughter and young son playing ball. And when they turn around, they said, Daddy, did you see that? Did you see that? Daddy, see that? Look, Daddy, look, Daddy, look, Daddy. They're saying, Daddy, are you pleased with me? Are you pleased with me? And I think when Jesus went down into the water, what in the center? John said, you don't need to be baptized. You ain't got nothing to wash away. Jesus said, just let's do this in obedience to the Father. Jesus goes down the water. There's this voice from heaven said, this is my beloved. He didn't say baby. It ain't my child. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. You know, the most precious thing you can have is when your life is over, you hear your daddy, God, say, well done. My faithful son, welcome home. Pleasing to the Lord. We're not under bondage anymore. We're not under tutors anymore. We're not under God. He said the Holy Spirit will teach you the word of God. The Holy Spirit will give you the spirit to call him daddy. If you're a long ways from God. And you, you, you don't feel like you're on daddy terms. You need to let the Holy Spirit bring you home. Because your daddy loves you. And he's declared that you are his son. I started studying that, and what this was, the Romans had this thing, was you could be a child, but it wasn't until that toga virellis thing that happens that that was considered an adoption, legal, even though it was your own son, that was the adopted time, the legal time, that it was designated that you will be the heir to that kingdom. And I even read where they were legal documents way back in Roman times. Somebody had made a son an heir and something happened later on. And he wanted to do away with that. And the law would not let him. No, once that's done, it's a done deal. And I was thinking, yeah. I'm a son of God. And ain't nothing the devil can do about it. And you're a son and daughter of God. And there's nothing the devil can do about it. You're as saved now as you're ever going to be a saved. You're as holy now as you're ever going to be holy. And you know, when he talked about this redemption, he said eventually the full, you know, it's like we're in a, a stage, everything is kind of adopted. We've got a new spirit. We've got a new faith. But the last thing that's going to be taken care of is the body. We're going to be given a new body. How many, how many, you know, when you actually called your child your child or your son or your daughter, how many had, was under any kind of illusion your son or your daughter was never going to mess up? Anybody? Good thing. And I don't think my daddy God has ever been in any kind of illusion that I would never mess up. 
or never sin or never fall short. And if I did, all I got to do is go to Daddy God and say, Daddy, forgive me. Forgive me. See, the gospel is about Jesus and nothing else. He'll write what's important on the tables of your heart. He calls you his sons and his daughters. It's time to throw off the old garments and put on the sonship garments. And take your rightful place in God's household. That's what it's time to do today. Can we bow our heads? Some of you have been beaten down in life. Maybe your own earthly fathers or mothers hadn't ever offered any rite of passage to you in a sense. You don't feel special. God wants you to feel special today. You are God's child. You're not only God's child, you're God's sons and God's daughters. He's got a very special place for you in his house. If you've got so far, you don't feel comfortable in calling Father, Daddy, I pray today that you would say, God, restore me back. Take the slavery away. Take that mentality of trying to achieve and trying to be, be something for you to love me. God, reassure me once more that you love me regardless of anything I could do or ever done. You paid the price. You bought me out of bondage. I didn't do it. You've chosen me. I didn't choose you. God, I thank you. The rest of my life, I want to serve nobody but Jesus. Nobody but Jesus. Dear Heavenly Father, today, as we come to you, Lord, I pray that you would make our hearts tender. Let us be aware of the Holy Spirit that's within us. Let the Holy Spirit bring to our minds and our hearts how much we love our daddy and how we want him to be pleased with our actions and our lives. And God, I know we're going to be living so much better than people trying to live according to the law. The law never produced one holy person ever. But God, you said, when you come back, Lord, you will present us holy and faultless before our daddy God. And I thank you for that, God, in Jesus' name. Amen.